Thank you, Sarah. Are all the buttons pressed, Matthew? You know, that was just amazing because that's the context, isn't it? That's the context for this passage and for the one that Catherine was looking at last week and for the next few weeks. I think Phil's is fractionally better next week. Goes down again the following week. It's the context that God is seated on his throne, that he holds all authority, that Jesus is there, the lion and the lamb who is slain, the one who is worthy to open the scrolls. That's the context. The everlasting worship of heaven. So with everything else that I'm going to say, I want you to remember that. So the scroll is opened and the seals are broken and there is devastation across the earth. And when the seventh seal is opened, there is silence. And it's hard to imagine, isn't it? To take the whole worship of heaven throughout the ages, the angels, the angelic beings, the elders, all those who have died in the name of Christ, worshipping around the throne, the noise. And then there is silence. Just for half an hour. But there is silence. And then there are seven angels with seven trumpets. And I want you to remember that that number seven is the number of completeness, of fulfillment. So we need not to stop till we get to number seven. Because it's the seven seals, it's the seven angels, it's the seven trumpets, it's the seven bowls of wrath. This is about the completeness and fulfillment of God's purposes. And an angel took a bowl of incense, and this is so beautiful, the bowl that was filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Every prayer that you have ever prayed, every groan, every cry, every plea, God has in that bowl in heaven. Every one, not one falls to the earth, every one, every tear offered in prayer. The angel offers that and the incense, the smoke from the incense ascends to heaven. And then the angel takes the censer which is filled with fire and in this very dramatic gesture the angel hurls the censer full of fire onto the earth. And as it hits the earth, there is thunder and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. We need to understand that what will follow is in some way an answer to the prayers of God's people. All this that you are about to see is in some way an answer to the cries and the groans and the shouts and the screams of God's people throughout all of history. And I want you to remember as we get going this morning that these are not necessarily consecutive sequences. 
They are more like different images, different visions of similar events all at the same time. I imagine it like sitting in some giant studio and all around the circumference of this enormous studio are these panoramic screens. And when I look there, my focus is entirely captivated by the God who sits upon the throne and all that worship him. And I look here and there are seven seals and they are being opened. And then I look over here and there are the seven angels with the seven trumpets. And I look here and I see something else. And all of these things are going on all at the same time, expressing different yet horrendous realities of what is and what will be. I also want you to remember something that Phil was speaking about a couple of weeks back. That what we are looking at here is God's perspective on the whole of history all at once. So if this is a timeline of history, it's a bit squished intentionally. Because God sees through every layer, in every nation, with every people group, all at the same time. Now if you like history then you probably have tried to work out, well, when that was going on, what else was going on, what was before, what was after, what made that occur? And we grasp a small bit, maybe 10 years, maybe slightly longer. But God looks at the whole. He sees the whole of human history all at once, everywhere. Is that mind-blowing? Good, it should be. <laughs> Excuse me. I sung too much. <laughs> there was a sign outside a church, and uh, it said this, and I quite like it. All of us, sorry, many people want to serve God, but only in an advisory capacity. And this is one of those moments, isn't it? One of those moments in Revelation where you feel like saying to God, excuse me, stop. Don't do that. People won't get it. They won't understand. Don't do that. Choose a different option. But God is God, isn't he? And he sees it all from the inception to the conclusion. And after the silence, there was a great cacophony of trumpet blasts. That was just one. Can you imagine in heaven half an hour of silence and then the angel, vast beings with a trumpet, a shofar, a ram's horn. And there is the blast of the trumpet that cuts through the silence of heaven. You know, this language that we're going to look at is highly provocative, isn't it? it causes our imaginations to be stimulated. That's the, that's the aim, by the way. <laughs> but it's also so symbolic. We need to understand that as we read it and try to grasp it. So why trumpets? Well, they're a symbol of proclamation, aren't they? They're a key symbol in certain festivals. They call the people to worship God, to focus on him. 
They called people to battle. There's no microphones. He blasted the trumpet and everyone heard and went, it's time, it's time to go to battle. They blew the trumpets to make announcements, to herald the work of God and to sound the alarm. And it seems to me that all those elements are present in this trumpet call, in this part of Revelation. So we have, you need to put your seatbelts on now, by the way, seven seals and seven trumpets, and both recount God's judgment on the earth. The seven seals parallel some of the things that Jesus said in Mark 13, which Catherine alluded to last week, and the seven trumpets reflect the ten plagues. More of that in a minute. And as I've already said, the seven trumpets are in part an answer to the prayers of God's people. Now, we record all our sermons. Last week's wasn't up online because Ian Buckley's been skiing. <laughs> but uh, I want you to understand today in the context of last week, I apologize if you haven't heard it, because Catherine did a serious job last week looking at some of the big questions behind what we read here. And so I'm not going to repeat that, but I'm speaking in the light of it. But I do want to touch on one thing, and I do mean touch on. <laughs> How can God sanction this apparently meaningless destruction of the natural world? A small question there, isn't it? How can God sanction this? You know, after probably around a century of intense war, of terror and terrorist atrocities such as perhaps we've never seen before, of genocide and famine and death. and We still kind of believe that the world is progressing in a roughly positive direction for some reason. It's not to say that there isn't much beauty and goodness and wonder in the world. But there is much that is just brutal and violent and devastating and destructive. We feel a bit shocked, don't we, when our nice little world is impinged on by evil, by violence, by terror. And that's probably one of the things that has been most shocking in these recent years is that we can't confine it to over there, to those kind of people. Because suddenly it's here and it's these kind of people and it's anyone and anywhere. And, and that breeds fear, doesn't it? And somehow we haven't grasped, unlike Jesus or the early Christians, just how serious sin is in the world. Sin isn't popular to talk about, is it? But sin is the root of the evil stuff. I guess Satan's the root of it, but you know, sin in our hearts is. We haven't grasped how serious sin is, how devastating sin is in God's world, how much it's disrupted and destroyed and devastated God's world. We haven't got it. We still think it'll get better. It'll be better next year. It's not going to get better. Sorry. Drastic action is needed for a drastic problem. And boy, do we have a drastic problem in our world. Along with that, in answering our question, we shouldn't mistake symbol for reality. 
It's stylized, isn't it? A third is not necessarily literal. It's a portion of. Drastic action to purify the world. Now, you all know that I'm rubbish at gardening, but I do understand a few things about it. I understand how to kill plants, for example. <laughs> but I also understand that if you have a tree or plant with a potentially deadly disease, sometimes, if you prune enough out of it, it will start to regenerate and to live again. This is kind of what's going on here, is this radical upsetting of our human systems, which keep millions of people enslaved and degraded. A little modification is not enough. Minor surgery isn't going to work. Major surgery is needed, and that's what this passage is talking about. And thirdly, we need to understand that this is a major rerun of the plagues. You know how we've said before that you need to understand the whole rest of the Bible, ideally, in order to understand Revelation? Well, this is about the plagues. This is echoes of the plagues in Exodus 7 to 12. Ten plagues after 400 years of slavery lead to freedom. Yeah? Ten plagues. And then the Passover. Now, to keep you engaged, tell me what the ten plagues of Egypt were. I didn't hear that. Boils. Boils came up first in the other service as well. <laughs> Actually, it was festering boils. <laughs> Frogs, they came up second as well. This is bizarre. Oh, hang on, hang on. One at a time, hands up. Locusts, right. Isabella, was you going to say that as well? Right. Nile turns to blood. Darkness, somebody said Emma. Death of the firstborn, it's Peter. Flies. It's a good effort, it's a good effort. We have water turned to blood, frogs, gnats. Everyone always forgets the gnats. Flies, deadly disease on the livestock, festering boils, not just your average boil. Thunder and hailstones, devastating crops, locusts, plague of darkness for three days, and the killing of the firstborn son. Now you know, don't you? Ten plagues and then the Passover, the shed blood of the Lamb. So we have these visions that are echoes or that resonate in the minds of the readers and the hearers. The plagues, that they would have known that story. They rehearsed the Passover every week in some measure they knew this story. They knew about the plagues. They would have just gone one, two, three, four, five, six, ten. And the plagues did two things. First of all, they were a warning. And secondly, they were a means of liberation. First of all, they were a warning. And secondly, they were a means of liberation. Those who were set free, those who didn't die, were those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb whose doorposts were covered with the blood of the Lamb. Those who were sealed by the blood of the Lamb in their obedience to God. Those who were passed over in these chapters of Revelation were those who were sealed by the blood of the Lamb. Do you see it? It starts to get less complicated when you do. And at the end of this, in chapter 15 of Revelation, in verse 3, so we grasp it, it says this, They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song 
of the Lamb. It's all there. It's all there for us already. So we have the first four trumpets, hail and fire. The sea turns to blood. Water is poisoned. There is darkness. It talks about one of you throwing a mountain into the sea. Do you remember Jesus says that? You've heard this. And then it talks about a mountain being thrown into the sea. It talks about a star fallen from heaven and making the water bitter. Referencing back to Isaiah 14 verse 13, which people in that day believed was talking about the king of Babylon. And trust me, Babylon's coming up a lot soon. You know, what we have here is the trumpets heralding great plagues, which are worldwide versions of the plagues of Egypt. And at that point, God was getting ready to rescue his people from slavery. Is that not what God is doing? Warning and getting ready to rescue his people from slavery. Are you still with me? Three of you are. So, just in case we're missing the impact of this judgment, a lone eagle flies by, obviously, saying, Woe, woe, woe. I don't know how eagles say that, but he clearly was saying that. And then after that, the fifth angel unleashes something truly hellish. Oh, by the way, this is just the first woe. The fifth trumpet allows another falling star to play a particular role. Normally, the ultimate source of evil and terror is kept firmly locked up. But this star is given the key to open the abyss. Bottomless pit. If you like the source of all our nightmares, we're not talking monsters under the bed or in the cupboard. We are talking the source of all our nightmares. The bottomless pit full of smoke and a furnace and darkness. This is intentionally vivid. It's intentionally horrific and nightmarish. We are meant to feel afraid, but it's a symbol, okay? Jesus said something about this kind of thing, and if you'll Go back with me to Mark chapter 7. I think it helps us to make sense of things. Good if you choose the right gospel. Mark chapter 7, they have a discussion about what's clean and what's unclean. And verse 18, he says this, Are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him clean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. He went on, what comes out of man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Jesus tells us about the deep, dark pit of our own hearts and of what comes out of them. Out of our hearts, bubbling over, come sexual immorality and theft and murder and greed and wickedness and envy and slander. And we do a really good job of the cleanup on the outside, don't we? All of you were brought up to behave really nicely. I know that because you're all sitting there through this sermon. 
We know how to look clean. We know how to act clean. Sometimes we are surprised by what comes out of our own hearts, are we not? Please nod. Thank you. Sometimes I think, where, where did that come from? Where did that level of anger come from? Where did that feeling of bitterness come from? Where did that jealousy arise? I followed Jesus for many years, but in my heart sometimes are dark, dark things. And I don't think that I'm unique, sadly. Out of the human heart, our hearts at times are full of rebellion, filth, wickedness. And this is what John is writing about because this seems to be true at a cosmic level too. It's like a black hole. It's a place of anti-creation, anti-matter, of destruction and chaos. It is anti-God, anti-Christ. It is everything that is not of God, not good, not of Christ. This is this dark abyss. And so John sees this vision. Are you ready for this? <laughs> he sees this vision, these monstrous, monstrous locusts, paralleling with the plagues, paralleling with the terrible army that's recorded of locusts in Joel. Man-eating, torturing locusts with heavy equipment and armor to make them impregnable and irresistible. They are given strict instructions. They are not to harm the vegetation, which of course is what norm normally locusts harm, or the sealed ones. We have to see the hope in there. They are allowed to torture people. Great. <laughs> Till they long to die. But their aim is to bring repentance. Their aim is to warn. But as in Egypt, people's hearts are hardened. And over them all is this character, Abaddon, Apollyon, the destroyer. We kind of get the message, don't we? And this is a symbol of the terrible things that have happened throughout history, where the monsters, actual locusts, some people think they're symbols of military equipment. You see that one up there? It looks a bit like a helicopter, doesn't it? Or a drone. Drones look really like these. Designed to kill, designed to destroy, designed to strike terror into people's hearts for the sake of power and empire. This is the symbol of all of that. All of that to warn the world that the way we're doing it doesn't work and we need to turn to God. I love it that you laugh in the reading because it shows me that you're listening. But the lifestyle of a locust looks a bit like this. Short biology lesson. The normal period of activity for a locust is approximately five months. Five months. Because they have locusts in the Middle East. John would have known about them. Five months. And the point of this is that though it's devastating, it is limited. And that's true of all these things. Whilst they are devastating, they are also limited. Because John's point throughout the whole of the revelation, Jesus' revelation to us, is that God and the Lamb remain sovereign. God is still on the throne. He still holds all authority. There is still worship. 
Even though for evil to be conquered, it has to be allowed to come into the open and to do its worst. So the sixth angel, nearly there. There's a threat of the army massing on the frontiers, ready to advance and to swallow up towns and villages. There you go, that's where the Euphrates River is, running through Turkey and Syria and Iraq. Not insignificant places, are they? That political and military nightmare of forces massing on the borders echoes through history, doesn't it? It's not so long ago that we had the president of the US talking about the axis of evil in this very area. In our time, most of us have known that the Iron Curtain is the Euphrates River, and across there, well, who knows what will happen? Who knows when they'll come? The power of the communist empire. In 15th and 16th century Central Europe, they talked about the Turk. He was the monster, the fear, the anxiety that the Turks would come and sweep through in the Roman Empire, the northeast frontier of Israel, at least in theory, was the river Euphrates. Everyone knew what John's vision was about when he talks about the angels being set loose from the river Euphrates. Everyone understood that this is their worst political and military nightmares coming true. This is God's way of letting evil do its worst so that it may eventually fall underneath its own weight. And whether we are talking about real and literal armies or the armies of hell itself, God is on his throne. And in his time, things are unleashed and in his time, they are stopped. I was thinking about this because... It's mentally hard to get your head around, but emotionally it's probably harder. And I've had a whole week of thinking about it, two weeks actually. And it talks in this chapter about a third of the people being killed. So I started reflecting on that. And I looked at the world population. The world population in AD 1 was 170 million. It had only grown by 20 million in AD 500. If you look at that graph, you'll see that most of the growth occurred in the past 50 years. It's absolutely incredible, the growth of the population of the world. We're on seven point something billion now. So in John's time, it was roughly 170 million people. A third of that is 56 million people-ish. I want us to take us back to God's out-of-time view of history because what we see here is a description of what is. The reality of human existence and behavior where there is terror and war and devastation of all manner of ways. Throughout our human history, there always has been, and it's only continuing and growing in magnitude. So I looked onto Wikipedia, and I looked up, this is what you do in half term if you're me, a list of wars and anthropogenic disasters, including deaths of civilians by disease or famine. 44 pages. 44 pages of that. Let me give you the contents. That's the contents. War and armed conflicts whose highest estimated casualties are one million or more. Genocide, ethnic cleansing and mass ethno-religious persecution, political purges and repressions, forced labor, etc. And then you can go on to some others if you're 
interested, by the way. Now listen, I had a look at this, because I'm that way out. And I just picked up one or two things. In World War II, 65 million people died, in some form or other, in World War II. By the way, I've chosen the lowest estimate. 65 million people. That's more than a third of the people that were alive in the time of John when he had this vision. The Mongol Empire, 30 million people were killed. During the Russian Revolution, 6 million people were killed. In the First Congo War, 1.5 million people were killed. During the Cambodian Genocide, 2 million people were killed. And during the slave trade, 33 million people were killed. Just gives a bit of perspective, doesn't it? That what we see in Revelation is simply a description of what is. Of what is. Of what we do to each other. Of what sin does when it takes a hold of our hearts and our peoples and our worlds. It's what happens, and forgive me, this is a little bit simplistic and I, and I know it's not like that. What happens when we choose economics over the environment? It's what happens when we choose consumerism over compassion. It's what happens when we choose aggression over appeasement. It's what happens when we're self-centered and not other-centered. This is what is in our world. And we can put the blinkers on and say, oh, I don't want to think about that. Well, I'll read the 44 pages of Wikipedia. We can say, this is too horrible. It's, it's grotesque. It's evil. It's... So is it that people were killed in Mosul by drones today? and bombed out of their homes in Homs in Syria and died without anyone knowing their name in southern Sudan today in famine. All this is a warning. A warning that we need to turn back to God, to put him first, to repent, to turn around, to put our lives in his hands, to stop ourselves as king of our thrones and put God on the throne. The end of chapter 9 is this very key verse from the message. The remaining men and women who weren't killed by these weapons went on their merry way. I just think that is just such a description of our worlds. Didn't change their way of life. Didn't stop worshipping demons. Didn't stop centering their lives around lumps of gold and silver and brass, hunks of stone and wood they couldn't see or hear or move. There wasn't a sign of a change of heart. They plunged right on in their murderous, occult, promiscuous and thieving ways. <sighs> Doesn't say much about us, does it? This is about idolatry, really. As were the plagues. John believed that human evil emerged from idolatry. Because you become like what you worship. And in the past, God took on the false gods of Egypt and he won. 
And he will do the same again with the 21st century idols of our age. We may not bow down before gold statues, although some people do. But I'm sure that at times we bow down before other idols. And an idol is just simply something that we put in the place where God should be. And God should be first. So anything that comes first is in effect an idol because God should come first. That's why we worship him. And then there's a little bit of a break where Phil preaches a nice sermon. And then we come to the seventh trumpet and I want to finish there because it's a little more cheery than finishing after the sixth trumpet. And because I want you to hear that this is about completeness and fulfillment, it doesn't finish at three or five or six. Every single one of these revelations finishes at seven. And every time we get to seven, there is good news, which is a relief when you're reading these chapters. And the seventh trumpet is sounded And there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Amen. Yeah. The kingdom of the world, which is God's in the first instant, has been liberated from the power of sin and death and darkness and Satan and given back to God who rightfully owns it. It has been redeemed, rescued, set free. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces. They have such an exhausting life, don't they? Continually sitting on the thrones and falling off again, (laughs) worshipping him. But just a wonderful picture. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. And have you noticed this? The one who was and is, or is and was. And every other time it's and is to come. But he isn't to come anymore because he is. He was and he is. And he's not to come. Because there is permanent presence. That's what eternity is. Permanent presence. And it is time for death to die. It is time for death to die. There will be an end, an end to suffering, an end to famine, an end to warfare, an end to sickness, an end to crying and to mourning and to tears and to loss and to grief and to pain and to evil. There will be an end. And it's God's end. And God's end has been in God's control since God's beginning. And we have to hold on to that. In our worship, we are not worshipping, singing silly little songs of unreality. We are singing strong truths of reality in the face of a different reality. There will be an end. It is time for death to die. Amen.